Welcome to Our Stories. I'm your host, Josh Awen. I'll be discussing with my guests stories about what makes them Jewish. We'll dive into their bonds to Judaism and what they hope to pass on to the next generation. Regardless of denomination, gender, or geography, I hope to highlight the commonality between us all through these episodes. Thank you for joining me for these stories, Our Stories. Your name? I'm Brenda, I'm 53 years old, and I live in Beit Shemesh, Israel. Okay, wonderful. Um, I guess, the like we talked about, I want to hear your story on how you are, how you're Jewish, and how that represents where you found your Judaism when you knew that you were a Jew from as a child, how that translates to when you became and felt Jewish as, a, as an adult or even as a person before you were an adult, and then how you're transferring that on or how you have transferred that on to your kids and then watching your kids kind of set sail and, and, and see where then let them kind of run free with it. So. Okay. I would say probably my earliest Jewish memory uh, was being around the, the Pesach Seder table with my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. And hearing my grandparents mostly tell the story, my Zeta used to have the Sidur, and my, my Baba, they'd have a Sidur, a Haggadah, I'm sorry, with the, and they'd have clippings from newspapers and magazines in it from years and years of accumulation. And they, so they could share modern stories as well as old stories with us. And I remember as a child, my grandfather sitting down with us before the Seder and saying, even at age of two or three, and saying, okay, Brenda, your job is going to be, uh, when I read the four, we're gonna, you're going to read the four sons, you're going to read the wise son. And so I would pr- spend half a day practicing my Hebrew and my English. I was just starting to read then at age three. And I, w- I remember, like, I, ha- I, was, I had a job. And, and that was how he brought us into Jewish tradition. And he was very serious about it. And w- I was a child, but he treated me like a mini adult. He gave us all jobs. And that's how it continued all throughout my childhood. Um, and today, I and my husband and I run our own seders. My grandparents aren't with us anymore. But that's a very strong childhood memory of seeing both my grandparents at that table in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up to their 90s with the Haggadah and with the things they had accumulated over the years, whether it were jokes or recipes or things about Israel. So they, they, that was a very strong way to, to where push Where was us that? Uh, Los Angeles, California okay. is where my grandparents were from. I grew up in Northern California, but the Seders were traditionally in Southern California with my grandparents. And where did they come from? They are both were both born in uh, Western Canada in small towns in Western Canada where they settled, the family settled over, over 100 years ago after coming from Russia, wow. uh, uh, escaping Russia and getting to Canada and the United States. So um, they were Canadian. My other grandparents settled in Boston and yep. ended up back in California as well. Were you ever a different son than the... Did you ever yes, wish that Yes, I was you were often a, the evil, the, the, the Russia, the were, evil son. Often I got stuck with the evil son. This is just a... Did you ever wish that it was a daughter? Or that can be a whole other conversation. Like Back the, then, no. I wouldn't say... I, 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 my awareness back then was not not so feminist, and I don't ever... I don't remember thinking that till maybe high school. Okay. Just, but that's a great question. Just curious. Um, so then... When did you then take your, you know, that, when did that transfer from you? Then did you realize that you were going to take it and become a grown up and then go from there? Okay, so I would definitely say that I started stepping up to the plate as a Jew. In high school, I joined a youth movement called B'nai B'rith Youth Organization, which was back then the largest Jewish youth organization in the world. We were 35,000 Jewish kids uh, from all over the world, all denominations. You didn't have to even belong to a synagogue to be in BBYO. I was recruited after an Israel trip by a friend of mine to join. I'd meet guys there. She said it would be really fun. Um, being one of the only Jewish kids in my high school, in my, in my elementary school, I was hungry for more Jewish friends. So I said, okay, I'll go along. To- 
this meeting with you. And there were a bunch of other girls in high school my age. And then the boys who were meeting in the next room, we went out for pizza after the meeting. So that was a big uh, pull. Um, and I was very attracted by the youth group because it involved a lot of um, youth basically directing the whole thing. You have jobs. You have president or secretary or treasurer or whatever, write for the newspaper. My first job was putting together a chapter newspaper. I was 15 or 16 years old. How many chapters did you have? Uh, in our region, there were 12 girls chapters and 12 boys chapters. Oh, so there are about hey. 350 kids in the Bay Area and BBYO. What was your first program? My Well, I think I was Orechet. I was chapter newspaper editor. So I had to put together some kind of newspaper. I think I put stuff in there about Soviet Jewry and about um, different synagogues in the in the Bay Area, Reform, Orthodox, Conservative, and where they're located. And I don't remember much more than that. Who was your advisor? Uh, we had an advisor named Sharon Gordon, but her advisor just sat in the back of the room. She did almost nothing. We did everything. They never do. Totally kid directed. No, but that's what made us grow exactly. and develop. So I would say that when I, I guess when I decided to go to something called the International Leadership Training Conference of BBYO, probably the best of best program of my life. ILT. ILTC. ILTC. I've yeah. heard of it. So it was I three weeks one. of leadership training. You were there too? I, I went to one in Bieber when I was Godol of awesome. North Star. So. You were good all of North Okay, take, yeah. we'll take this offline. Yeah, exactly. You did not tell me that. That yeah. was totally awesome. Um, so I went to ILTC at yeah. 16. It's before I was active. I just heard about the summer camp and I thought, that sounds really cool. I'm going to go. So I signed up and I went. And after I completed three weeks of leadership training, I went back to San Francisco. My chapter, the girls said, Brenda, now you have to run for president because you just been to this amazing program. I'm like, I just went for self-enrichment. Like, mm -hmm. no, uh-uh, you have to run. And that was the beginning of one leadership uh, position after another. I also entered an oratory contest for BBYO. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to get up and make speeches. So that I won a few rounds of that competition. And therefore, I also had to go to what was called International Convention with mm -hmm. 600 Jews from all over the world. Uh, so I went to both conferences. I came back and I realized, like it or not, I have to step in that position of leadership. And I went from position to position until I became the international president. Were you nervous stepping into a, a position of leadership or did you feel comfortable after you realized what you were doing? I was kind of pushed into it, all my leadership positions actually, I kind of pushed in and inspired by others and who saw something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself, but um, so I'm grateful to them for even thinking of it and pushing me forward. And, but once I was there, I, I was comfortable and confident. I had a lot of other uh, young women around me who were willing to do jobs. How do you approach leadership? How do I approach leadership? Well, I think in general, like Ben Gurion said in the movie that we watched yesterday, a leader needs a lot of people around him who have the same ideas and beliefs. So if you're alone in a project, you might be able to launch something and make a change, but trick is to get people to join with you. So if there aren't other people around who are interested in what you're trying to do, you're kind of a lone leader. So I, I, ideally, I think that a leader is someone who can get people behind him or her on who believe in the same belief or want to do the same program and are willing to do a little bit of work and bring other friends out uh, of their homes to make change. Mm -hmm. So I think leadership has to do with getting others to identify with you, have fun doing it. They have to have some fun doing it mm -hmm. and believe in it and be willing to put in a little time and effort. If you don't have that, most likely you're not going to be a successful leader. Okay. So then, we'll fast forward. It sounds like BBIO kind of steered you down the path, started you down the path towards adulthood. So then where did it go from there? Did it then, so, you stayed in uh, California? You know, we're, we're here at a conference about being a Jewish doer. And I, and I had a little epiphany today. And I realized the biggest Jewish doing I, went, I did in my life, you could say it was being international president of, of, of B'nai B'rith Girls. You could say that. That was a, a year of doing, uh, four years of doing. 
But then I thought, you know what, the, the, the gorly, the fate, fateful decision of my life of doing as a ripe old age of 19 was probably when I decided not to attend UC Berkeley for my BA, but to go to Hebrew University, to come to Israel at 19, to learn Hebrew, immerse myself, do my BA here, and try to make, make a life here before I had a car and a house and a husband, connections, deep connections in, in the Bay Area and San Francisco. Uh, of course, I had a family there who I love very much, but I felt... I just was, took this big jump. I jumped into the pool of making Aliyah and becoming Israeli. And that was a total life change. Maybe probably the biggest decision I've ever made in my life. So that was a big transform, so that, transformation. So that, that pushed you into being your own person. That, that cemented your flag in the ground, said, here I am. I am no longer, I'm, I can do for myself now. I, I'm gonna I would go. say yes. Being a Jewish leader for, for, for a Jewish organization for the whole world, gave me a huge sense of responsibility towards the future of the Jewish people. And I thought, okay, where can I best spend my, however long I'm going to live, whether it's five years or 50 years or 100, where can I spend my, where will my adult life be most effective? If I stay in the American Jewish community and become a American, continue to do American Jewish leadership, incredibly important mission. At that point, I decided to go for another mission and build the future of the Jewish people in the state of Israel, where I saw that I felt I would be a front, um, a front row participant in the unfolding Jewish history. For example, I was in Israel when Natan Shermansky walked off that plane from Soviet Russia and was freed from prison. I was here. I was at the airport when uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews were brought out of Ethiopia to Israel. I was here. They were my neighbors, my friends. When a million Russian Jews came out of the Soviet Union to Israel, I was here. Um, so I, I, so you had a front row seat, like you said, absolutely. to watch the, the country transform as many times and, over and the Jewish has. people transformed. When I moved here, uh, the majority of Jews in the world lived in the plurality, lived in the United States. Uh, and today, um, Israel is is has taken over as the country with the largest Jewish population in the world, um, out out eclipsing the rest of the Jewish communities in the world. Today, we have the American Jewish community and Israel being the two largest communities. But if you look at the traje trajectory of demographics, Jewish demographics, Israel's on the rise, and the Jewish American community numbers are going down, which shows me that, in, at least number-wise, the future is most definitely here in Israel. And I want to be a part of that. I want to yeah. be front and center. Yeah. Well, okay. continue to be front and center. Continue. Interesting. So then, where? So now you're in Israel. You, you've established that you're here. You're working with that front row seat. But then, as life always does, it sneaks up behind us, and all of a sudden, you have children, and you have a, a life to deal with. And while you're helping others around the world, you still have to come home and make dinner and, and take care of kids. And, and you also probably can tell the stories of what it's like to hug your kid goodbye and send them off to the army, which a lot of people in, in the States, obviously, some, which we thank them for their service, especially from Israel, too, that, I mean, you have to hug them and say goodbye as they go off to military service. So being an Israeli mother, um, I knew moving here, I knew right away that my kids were going to serve in the army. And that's actually one of the, it might sound crazy, but it's one of the reasons I moved here. When I uh, made Aliyah, we were in the midst of the Lebanon War, first Lebanon War, and my cousins were serving on the front in, uh, in combat units. And here I was sitting in San Francisco, my nice, comfortable, active Jewish life, 
but comfortable when my cousins could possibly be killed um, for defending Israel. And something just didn't ring true with me. That was one of the additional reasons I decided I had to come to Israel and do my part. And that meant sending my, I was not drafted myself. I was too old by the time I became a citizen. I wasn't drafted. My husband did serve. Um, he's an American, former American Jew as well. So he did serve. Um, so I have, I have three children. Now they're all done with their army service. Um, but I knew, I knew as being an Israeli parent, that's just something you do. Okay. So I knew, and I was ready as painful as it is and worrying. I, it was just something I was socialized with. And as an Israeli adult, everyone goes in. So it's something is everyone else was doing. Living in Israel, not understanding that and like having that idea as, as a parent in the States, is that something that you have found a comfort level with, with other Israeli mothers? Is, is there just like a, a, an underlying Absolutely. note of... You know, she's not, she, one of her kids is at service this week, just give her a minute. Is there like an underlying tone that, 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 that you as a, as a mother share with other, or even fathers or other parents? Yes, that all parents say, uh, share this. And we Anglo immigrants to Israel, we even have our own Facebook page for Anglo parents of IDF soldiers. Wow. So we don't know everything that the Israeli born people know. Like when your son or daughter finishes her, her swearing in ceremony, you're supposed to bring a picnic, like with chicken and rice and sit on the grass. And some families have t-shirts, a whole family t-shirt with a you know big muzzle tub for their, for their son or their daughter. So like, I didn't know a lot of things when my kids went in because I wasn't born here. So there is now a Facebook page where you, that parents like us can actually go on and say, what do you do when your child, you know, finishes this phase? And what should I expect? And how many pairs of underwear and socks do I need to buy for him? And yeah. is he going to be in a, wanting to talk at the dinner table or should I just let him go to sleep? Yeah. Or he's going to fall asleep at the Pesach Seder because he's in combat duty and he's coming home right before. Um, or we're religious, but, you know, is it okay if he... You know, um, if we talk to him on the phone, if there's an emergency on Shabbat and he's in the army. So these are issues that we parents um, all talk about. Mm -hmm. It's very comfortable. We all talk about it. Um, not all of our children are in combat. So some parents are more stressed than others. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you. Um, so my children, for example, I, we were talking. I chose to make Aliyah and I chose to be in Israel and I chose to be an observant Jew. My kids are all young adults now and they're going to have to choose their own path. That's a little bit has been something really challenging for me because I, you know, chose a path and I chose a country to live in for them and, and tried to give them a really strong foundation in Judaism and Zionism. And, and now they're choosing their own way and they're new Jews. They're choosing different paths necessarily, not necessarily the same as, as their parents. Um, but uh, as far as army goes, once they were in the army, the army chose for them what they were going to do. So one, uh, a bizarre reality as a Jewish mother, um, in the last war, Tsuketan, uh, caste-led war, all three of my children were in the army. Um, one of them is a student at the Technion, and he was uh, drafted on Shabbat, given a call. He's religious, but he was called on Shabbat and told to get up to his base in, within three hours um, to get his tank ready. Um, he's a tank loader. Um, and so he kind of he said, Mom, Ima, you know, I'm, I've got to go pack and the middle of Shabbat, Kiddush, lunch, I got to go pack. I've got to leave in an hour. So the war had already started. So that's one son down. The other son was in permanent army service in um, army intelligence in the south of the country. And his job was had something to do with Hamas and the tunnels and where they are and helping our soldiers identify them. And 
So I had one son in active service with missiles being rained down at his base, another one in, in a tank going into Gaza, and my daughter, who had just been recruited, uh, she was 19 at the time, to be a missile instructor, an Iron Dome missile instructor. So all three of my kids were in the Army during the war at the same time, and I had to go to work every day, as yeah. if nothing was happening two hours away. Yeah. So I would get up, go to work. Missiles were also falling on Beit Shemesh, where I live, and we had no bomb shelter in our building. So it was very strange reality as an Israeli parent, trying to work, do my job at the Jewish agency, keep a smile on my face. Meanwhile, missiles are falling near my home and my children are all in, in the army and I can't necessarily talk to them. Um, so it was incredibly, incredibly bizarre and difficult emotionally time of life. I can tell you some things, coping me mechanisms that we had um, in Beit Shemesh, which is a very spiritual community, very religious also. We, ordered, we organized women's prayer groups and hundreds of women showed up and I was asked to speak, as were some of my friends, about what our children are doing. So we got to share a little bit about what we're going through. And then we sang and prayed, and secular women showed up, religious women showed up. And even I had a group of ultra-Orthodox women literally surrounding me after my little talk, telling me they were crying and they were saying how sorry they were. It was bizarre because they don't send their children to the army. And, yeah. and so here I was with my kids, three of my kids serving the country, and they... They were there crying, but they did to their to their benefit. They said they had all cooked Shabbat meals to send to the front to soldiers, and they were praying for the safety of our soldiers, which they believe that's their contribution towards national security. But okay, you take eat. a gift. You got to eat. Yeah. Take a gift where yeah. you can get it. I had people knocking on my doors, I'm not kidding, with cake, flowers before Shabbat, and... Um, cards for my son, uh, gift cards to send to him. His, the tank he was in was like it decorated with cards from people all around the country just um, encouraging them. People in my neighborhood filled up their cars every two days with food, toothpaste, underwear, socks, um, and drove it down to the front. And people in my neighborhood also volunteered to like make uh, hamburgers and steak and hot dogs for the combat soldiers. As they got out of the front line, they got to like a couple hours sometimes to shower, shave, get some new um, yeah. uh, equipment. And they would get these barbecues just from citizens like you or me. People went to the supermarket. They showed up at this Moshav where they heard some guy was feeding soldiers. And they were like hundreds of volunteers there. You would have been there yeah. every day just making hamburgers, hot dogs, and incredible. Being an Israeli then, yeah. I, I was very proud. So did you see then at that point, did your kids come back from, I mean, they're all younger, they're young adults. I mean, they, what they're doing on the front lines is what you were doing when you got elected international president. I mean, that, so that, so do you think... Serving the Jewish people that, in some way. That they're serving the Jewish people, but have you noticed that that has cemented Judaism in your kids? And, and, and then do you see it, it, it has transferred once again? I mean, do you see it that they're, like you said... The Judaism that you that you are doing, observant Jew, live in this neighborhood, but you're, you let your kids do what they want to do. Have you noticed that that they're doing that they're Jewish, being Jewish? So I, that, it's a, that's the toughest of all your questions. I would say that that they were being Israeli, okay, and being uh, Israelis, they're naturally being Jews. For me to necessarily connect their army service with their Judaism, I would just say that they're serving the Jewish people in, in the highest way possible by protecting the country. But but uh, I would say as a, as a Jewish mother, as a, and I'm sure my husband would agree, that's not that's not enough. And I want them to have a meaningful Jewish life. That means that means my hope for them would be that they find a, a community in Israel. Everyone's Jewish almost, so it's going to be Jewish community, but with some Jewish content. I want to see them celebrating the holidays. I don't care that they do it exactly how I do it, but I 
certainly expect them to the continuity of them having uh, Pesach seders with their children and fasting on Yom Kippur or or, or contempl- serious contemplation um, about their life path and who they are on on the serious fast days. Um, I I expect them to if they travel around the world um, and and to explore Jewish life in other places and or if they're traveling during the holidays to take time out and not just go to a, an art museum in Paris but oh today is Shavuot like oh this is the day of the giving of Torah. I should be at Chabad, or I should be, you know, with my family that day. I want Judaism to be infused all in the Jewish calendar. I want them, they're, they're, they're not ignorant. They know about all the holidays. They went to religious schools, even though not all of, all of them are religious today. They have uh, decent knowledge. They went to pre-army uh, academies um, before they went in the army, which meant they were with secular and religious Jews from all over Israel learning together. Um about Jewish life and Jewish identity. They're building their own identities today. Like I said, I don't know exactly how they're going to end up, I, but I, what I'd like them to take from their from what they got from us is a sense of um, a responsibility towards the Jewish people, being some kind of community leader, even if that means a community of five, you know, that they're involved in medical safety or they want to bring uh, a Parshat Shavua Jewish learning in, in their own, in, through art to their to their neighborhood or their community or their kibbutz or wherever they're going to end up living. I do want them to have a sense of responsibility and that they are part of the continuity of the Jewish people, not just living in Israel as Israelis, not just going to the army. No, that's not enough. That's not enough. I want them to each be leaders in their own way or being an active part of a community, whether that means being gabai at the shul or a Torah reader, or whether that means working in a soup kitchen to feed Holocaust survivors, or my daughter using her art to beautify Jewish holidays or Jewish communities, I, I, I hope that they will take something of what I've just mentioned and infuse their lives with it. To me, that's continuity, but it means being proactive. It means where did I start and where are I now? What, did I, what tools did I get from my home and my parents, my grandparents, and what am I doing with it? Am I just living my life, you know, uh, going to work every day, coming home, having a couple of kids and, you know, just coming home every day? To me, that's not living a full, infused Jewish communal life. That's what I would like for them. I don't know what the future holds, but they're each uh, um, very responsible and caring and loving individuals. And I hope that they will have successful lives and stay in Israel uh, forever. They have the choice to live wherever they want in this world. They're American citizens also. So I hope they'll choose to stay here and live their lives here and build something beautiful in Israel that they can be proud of. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful story. I think that nailed it. Thank you for sharing everything. And my pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for joining me for these stories, our stories.